Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to look at the temptation of Christ. We're not going to be able to deal with it in one sermon. Today we'll be uh, getting all the way up until the actual temptation itself, but we have a lot of uh, very important things to consider. It's an extremely interesting and important section of Scripture. And this is the temptation of Christ. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. <clears throat> then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and... In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan! For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. <clears throat> After Jesus' ministry officially begins, which occurs with the baptism of John... Uh, in the, in the Jordan River by Bap, John the Baptist. And the Holy Spirit descends as a dove upon him. He's anointed beyond measure by the Holy Spirit. And then God the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And it, he spoke in an audible voice. And that's the first time God spoke to Israel in an audible voice since Exodus chapter 19. <clears throat> he was immediately, according to Mark 1.12, led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Why does Jesus' ministry begin with a test? We'll be looking at that. This temptation was certainly part of God's plan in that the Holy Spirit directed the Savior into the wilderness for the purpose, for this purpose, and it occurred at the end of an extended fast when Jesus was exceptionally hungry and weak physically and thus most vulnerable. As you look carefully at this section of Scripture, we will see that this test was not merely a preparation for our Lord's public ministry, but also was necessary for Christ to be a faithful second Adam, who would fulfill all righteousness. Before we analyze this text, there are a number of introductory matters to consider. This is a very rich, amazing section of Scripture. First, these events are presented in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. While Mark gives only a very brief summary of the temptation, Matthew and Luke go into detail and record the three-point dialogue between Jesus and the devil. Since Jesus was all alone during the temptation, the details of what occurred had to be taught to the apostles after they occurred. 
So this was dependent upon Jesus himself being the eyewitness. Matthew is probably the source of Luke, and I believe was the source also with for Mark. I don't believe the liberal view that Mark was the first gospel and Matthew and Luke followed. I don't buy that. I think Matthew's was the first gospel. <clears throat> Mark had Matthew and perhaps a testimony of Peter, who heard it from Jesus. Second, the verb here, pyrazo, which can mean tempt or test, depending on the context, when this is used to describe the devil attempting to get Jesus to act contrary to God's will, or to interpret scripture in a perverted manner, the word tempt is appropriate. Because it's a temptation to commit sin against God. It's a temptation to violate God's word. Satan seeks to get Jesus or Christians to commit sins against God. For Satan, temptation is always directed against God's person and will. It is a desire to get men to proclaim independence from God, to create autonomous humanistic ethics. And the goal, of course, is rebellion against God. That's what Satan wants to do. Now, the word test is also a proper translation when this word is used to describe God's activity in testing his people for the purpose of seeing the sincerity of their faith and or strengthening their commitment and furthering sanctification. <clears throat> James says, Let no one say he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. James 1.13 And in Deuteronomy 8.2-3 we read, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these forty years in the wilderness to humble you, and test, and in the Greek Septuagint, it's the same verb as our text, and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And it's very interesting that Jesus will, we'll see, I'll quote that against Satan. With God's test, certain hardships ensue for the purpose of his people trusting him more and more and depending on his promises. God's not, you know, God saved me. He brought me out of the land of Egypt. He brought me out here. He's not going to let me die in the wilderness. He, he'll create food if he has to. And of course he did. He created the manna, supernaturally. It is the exact opposite of Satan's temptations. The devil seeks rebellion. Yahweh seeks humility, faith, and obedience to his word. You see the difference? Even though it's the same Greek word. Satan seeks human autonomy. God seeks theonomy. The tempter wants us to break God's commandments. Well, God tests us so that we will keep his commandments and trust him more and more. So just a, a, a note on that word. Third, the pericope contains three different temptations framed by an introduction, 
which we'll look at today, verses 1 to 2, and a conclusion, verse 11. Number one, <coughs> to turn stones into bread, verses 3 to 4. To jump from the pinnacle of the temple, verses 5 to 7. That's number two. Number three, to receive the kingdom of the world immediately by worshiping Satan, verses 8 to 10. The temptations follow a similar pattern. A, a setting is noted. B, the devil proposes a temptation to Jesus. And C, the emphatic rejection of the temptation by Christ. In all three cases, Jesus answers the temptation with, it is written, kagraptai, literally, it stands written. And thus quotes from scripture, the book of Deuteronomy, and of course, the Psalms. In the first temptation, Satan seeks to pervert and even mock the purpose and proper uses of miracles. In the second, God's promises of protection are perverted, twisted, and mocked. Okay, uh, God promises to protect his people. That doesn't mean you hop on a motorcycle and go down the freeway doing 150 miles an hour weaving in and out of cars because God will protect you, you see. <laughs> in the third, Satan asks Jesus to abandon God's plan of salvation and godly dominion in favor of a satanic humanism and rank idolatry. In the first temptation, Satan cleverly twists scripture. Satan uses scripture. In the final temptation, he boldly asks Jesus to abandon God and his mission for earthly glory, immediate glory. And then fourth, the central challenge of Satan against Jesus is on his divine sonship. It's very interesting. The first two temptations begin with, if you are the son of God. This shows us the, important of, the importance of the context. How did Satan know that Jesus was the Son of God? Well, it is at the baptism of John, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3, 17. So Satan, a priori, that is before even considering facts, rejects the Father's divine testimony regarding Jesus and demands proof with miraculous signs. Satan rejects the word of God and demands, and this is very similar to the temptation in the garden. Has God said? You really can't trust God. You need to experiment for yourself and use empiricism to determine for yourself. Look at the tree. Look how nice it is. You can't trust God. Trust your eyes. <clears throat> Our Lord's position is that God's word settles every matter and refuses to subject the word to an empirical test to please the devil. Now, it's interesting that throughout his ministry, Jesus, the Jewish leaders, reject the Old Testament's clear testimony regarding Jesus. He fulfills the prophecies perfectly, and there are dozens of prophecies that he fulfills perfectly. Very detailed prophecies. And... Jesus' own testimony. They reject the miracles. There's lots of miracles. Consequently, they, like Satan, their covenantal father, repeatedly demand signs and miracles, even though our Lord was performing amazing miracles on a consistent basis. And what did Jesus say? He told them. He told his disciples, they won't even believe even if someone rises from the dead. 
So if you're unregenerate, empirical observations are not going to turn you to Christ. But it's interesting, Satan's pattern and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the unbelievers' pattern, is almost identical. The other main challenge is for Christ to acquire the kingdom on Satan's terms, not God's terms. The path to godly dominion for Christ was one of humiliation. It was one of humility, rejection, suffering, even to the point of the death of the cross. And that is why Christ was unwilling to simply create bread in order to be loved by the people. Remember when he uh, he did create the bread and the fishes for that one inst that a few instances, uh, because the people were basically watching him teach all day and they were famished. And what do they want to do? They wanted to make him king immediately, and they wanted <laughs> they wanted to make him king. They wanted a welfare state king, and Jesus said, "No, no way." When he does amazing miracles in private, he will often tell people to keep it a secret. It is the gospel that is used by the Holy Spirit to convert sinners, not miracles. Now, miracles are important. They're in Scripture during important critical periods of redemptive history to authenticate new revelation. Satan tempts Jesus to acquire a full-blown kingdom immediately by following his program, which is reject God, worship me. Reject the law, have human autonomy. The devil challenges Jesus' identity as the Son of God, and he seeks to break the unity and love and purpose between the Father and the Son, and cause Jesus to abandon his trust, loyalty, and obedience to the Father. Satan promotes a statist, humanistic, power messiah, just like the unbelieving Jews. That's not an accident. The devil is attempting to derive a wedge, drive a wedge between God the Father and Jesus the Messiah by perverting the meaning of the Word of God and appealing to Jesus' uh, ego, pride, and personal ambition as if Jesus was a stupid, foolish sinner like everybody else. Look what I can give you. Look at the glory of all the kingdoms of the world. All these kingdoms of the world, keep in mind, were all satanic. The devil's temptation will continue in the voices of the unbelieving Jews who not only repeatedly ignore the meaning of God's word and demand signs, but also mock Jesus and demand that he comes down from the cross in order to prove that he really is the Son of God. Matthew twenty-seven forty, Very interesting. Hey, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you're the Son of God, don't fulfill your mission. <laughs> Disobey God. Come down. They rejected the suffering Messiah who steadfastly obeyed the Father's will for the military dictator Messiah concept who uses physical force to kill the Jews' enemies. A very carnal concept of the Messiah. They were, you know, they, if you study the Messiah in the Old Testament, yes, he's a victorious Messiah. Yes, he'll conquer the nation spiritually. But he does so by going to the cross. He conquers through regenerating hearts and the gospel. He doesn't conquer by riding around killing people. But they left. They rejected the humiliation aspects. They liked the stuff about him conquering. They didn't like the humiliation aspects. They rejected Isaiah 53. 
It is not an accident that those who reject the cross of Christ in the establishment of a spiritual kingdom almost always fall into a carnal, worldly, humanistic concept of tyrannical power. Francis Schaeffer, his son, Frankie Schaeffer, Francis Schaeffer, a very godly, great Christian writer, well, his son became a complete apostate. And what did he do? He became a liberal Democrat. That's the logical step. If you're going to follow Satan, that's Satan's program. That's Satan's idea of the kingdom. Satan's idea of the kingdom is complete state power controlling every aspect of your life, and you worship the state as his savior. As you look at this section, these observations will come into focus. And there are many things to consider. Let's look first at the place and circumstances of the battle. In verses 1 and 2, the place and circumstances of temptation are noted. <coughs> then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, these verses reveal a number of things about this pericope first. Jesus was led up by the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit, who had just descended upon him in his baptism, actively directed Christ into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. So the temptation of the Messiah at the beginning of his ministry was something that God had planned for his son. It was necessary, not simply as a preparation for the discharge of his ministry, but also to fulfill all righteousness. Now, Adam and Eve were tested by God in the garden to see if they had faith in his word and as a result, if they would obey his command. What happened? Well, they failed. Jesus, as the second Adam, endured a far greater test, not in paradise, but in the wilderness, to prove himself faithful not only as the spotless Lamb of God, a perfect sinless sacrifice for his people, but also as the perfect obeyer of God's will, the second Adam. Now, what, what would have happened if Adam had obeyed? Well, he would have inherited eternal glorified life. The covenant of works. If you do this, if you're faithful, you'll have it, you'll basically now it was a gracious covenant God didn't have to give it but that was the condition he had to obey obviously obedience requires faith he did not obey Jesus by his redemptive ministry not only removed the guilt of sin and the curse of the penalty of the law but he also established a perfect positive righteousness thus earning eternal glorified life for all those who would believe in him he is called the second Adam for a reason. Now, a number of scholars note similarities between the testing of Jesus in the wilderness and the testing of Israel in the wilderness. 40 days for Jesus, 40 years for the Jews. Deuteronomy, when you get a chance, look at Deuteronomy 8.2. As Yahweh led Israel into the wilderness in order to test them to see if they had faith in the fruit of faith, that is, obedience to God's commandments, God tested Jesus to show him triumphant where Adam and Israel had failed. So the Son of Man came to earth, he assumed a human nature, and perfectly fulfilled all the obligations of the law as to precept and penalty 
in order to be the Messiah, the faithful priest, king, redeemer. <coughs> totally necessary. This test proved the fidelity of the Son of God to the covenant of redemption. And here's a great passage, Hebrews 10, 5-7. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering that is of bulls and goats, that's the context, you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices, for sin you have no pleasure. He's talking about bulls and goats again. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. It is likely that the testing of Jesus in the wilderness is a typological notation of the Messiah as the true Israel of God, and that one can only be united to the true Israel by faith in him, the only perfect covenant keeper. The Old Testament, the old Israel stumbled and fell due to lack of faith and obedience. The new covenant head of the new true Israel of God stood fast. And we are saved by looking to his total commitment to God, performed to perfection in the Incarnation. Second, he went into the wilderness. Now, the area of wilderness is not specified. We're not told what wilderness. There's a lot of wilderness in Palestine. <clears throat> if he headed east from the Jordan River, he would be in a des desolate hill country. If he headed southwest, he would be in a desert. The wilderness for the Jew indicated a period where preparation for a new beginning and a new kingdom occurred. Between the desolate hill country in the west of Judea and the lower Jordan and the Dead Sea in the east is a very desolate area of exposed rocky soil. Such lonely, unfruitful, desolate areas exist due to the curse of the fall. At one time, the Sahara Desert was a lush rainforest. At one time, all of the Middle East was lush and beautiful. But the fall radically changed things. So Jesus faced the devil alone, and he conquered the devil alone. Third, the tempter is the devil. The word is diablo, diabolos. The devil himself, also called Satan. The word devil means slanderer. He lies about God. He lies about God's word. He lies regarding Christ. He is also called Satan, which means an adversary, an enemy. <clears throat> when the word has the article, as it sometimes does, he is the adversary, the chief adversary, as in Job 1 and 2 and in Zechariah 1 and 2. It is God's designated name for the devil. The devil is the highest, most powerful angelic being who rebelled against God, and thus the Greek Septuagint almost always renders Satan as diabolus and treats the word as a proper name. He is the chief enemy or adversary of God, and he does so using lies, slanders, and accusations. Here's what he's called in Scripture, here just briefly. He is the accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12.10 The adversary, 1 Peter 5.8 Beelzebub, Matthew 12.24 Meaning the dung god or the god of excrement. Abaddon, or Apollon, Revelation 9, 11, both meaning the destroyer. Belial, 2 Corinthians 6, 15, which means worthless, hopeless ruin, or the wicked one. The great dragon, Revelation 12, 9, symbolizing great destruction. 
the deceiver of the whole world, Revelation 12.9, the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4, the ruler of this world, John 12.31, 14.30, the ancient serpent, Revelation 12.9, referring back to Genesis, the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2, 2. he's the ruler of the demons, he's the leader of the demonic hordes, the tempter, Matthew 4.3 and 1 Thessalonians 3.5. The evil one, Revelation 13.19 and 38. The father of lies, John 8.44. A liar, John 8.44. Satan is the ruler of the powerful kingdom of evil, which throughout history has ruled in it with a malevolent, evil consistency. He is the head of a well-organized kingdom where demons have different ranks and responsibilities. And that's quite clear in the passage in uh, Ephesians, where the, the different levels of the demons are listed. All the fallen angels give their allegiance to Satan. Revelation 12, 4 and 7 and 9. They retain their rank and titles they had prior to the fall. And they follow Satan's plan of opposing God, Christ, and the kingdom of grace, with a satanic counterpart and evil, grotesque imitation. His tactic in history has always been persecution or just simply kill people. And if you can't kill him, join him. <laughs> if you can't kill him, have a perverted counterfeit, come as an angel of light and bring heresy and destruction that way into the church. That's actually been much more successful. <clears throat> the Roman Catholic Church has done sent way more people to hell than the Roman Empire ever did. In Job 1.7 and 2.2, Satan is pictured as going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down upon it. The devil's chief enemy is Yahweh and Jesus Christ and all those who follow him. And Luke 22, 31, Jesus warns Peter that Satan wanted to have him, that is, destroy him, so that he could sift him as wheat, Luke 22, 31. The risen Lord warned the church at Smyrna that they would be thrown into prison and suffer great tribulation because of the devil, Revelation 2, 10. Now, who arrested them and threw them into prison? Roman authorities did. Civil magistrates did. That were pagan. Who is behind the civil magistrates? The devil. Who is behind Joe Biden? The devil. Who is behind Nancy Pelosi? The devil. Who is behind those wicked wretches on the Supreme Court that believe murdering babies is okay and wonderful? Satan is. Peter warns the believers to be sober and vigilant. 1 Peter 5.8 Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The devil's power and role over the present evil world system is due to the fact that men are fallen and therefore are innately evil and rebellious against God. And unbelievers base their philosophy, religion, ethics, principles, goals, etc. on false, humanistic, satanic systems and worldviews. Okay, you're either for Christ, Jesus made this quite clear, you're either for me or against me. You're either following a satanic worldview or you're following Christ and what Christ has revealed to us in the Bible. So even though there are monotheistic religions, Unitarian monotheistic religions like Islam and Judaism, and of course the cults and Unitarians, uh, they're satanic. And it's a satanic philosophy that brought that about. And they all teach salvation by works, which is satanic. The idea that sinful creatures like us could somehow earn our way to God is downright ridiculous. The central underlying principle of Satanism is human autonomy from God. 
that as man creates his own idea of truth, religion, ethics, community, politics, etc., independently of God and his inspired infallible word. The Satanist, Aleister Crowley, who, by the way, is very popular with a lot of rock musicians, summarized it saying this, do what thou wilt. He said, if you want a phrase summarizing Satanism, do what thou wilt. Or to paraphrase, do whatever you want. You create your own law. You create your own ethics. You create your own reality. If you want to be a woman, you're a woman. If you want to be uh, a sex pervert, go for it. If you like bestiality, go for it. If you want to be a drug addict, go for it. And they did all those things. They practiced bestiality. Uh, they were all into heroin and drugs and cocaine and all those things. And this was the great temptation of Eve in the garden. Don't listen to God. Don't listen to his word. Has God really said that? Come on. You should determine for yourself what is true and what is false, what is good or what is evil, independently of God. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15 For the purpose of setting man on the path of rebellion and evil against God. You know, like the beautiful woman who marries a man because she wants to murder him and get his inheritance or insurance policy which actually happens more often than you'd think. Now, having noted the power and evils of Satan, it is also important that we note his limitations. He is a created being and can only operate within the limits laid upon him by God. He can only do what God allows him to do. In the book of Job, he goes before the Lord and he gets permission to tempt Job. He had to get Yahweh's permission to put Job to the test. And the same goes for the temptation of Eve and also of Jesus. At times the devil's actions can cause affliction to God's people. John 10, 28, uh, Romans 8, 38, 39, 1 John 4, 4. But the Lord never allows Satan to have victory over his people. In addition, Jesus had a complete definitive victory over Satan and the forces of darkness at the cross and the resurrection. John 12, 31, 16, 11, Colossians 2, 14 and 15, Hebrews 2, 14, etc. But the effect in history of this victory is slow and not completed until the second coming. Everyone who believes in Christ is set free from the devil and the powers of darkness and the dominion of darkness. Jesus said that his kingdom would spread throughout the whole earth as leaven spreads throughout a lump of dough. Matthew 13, 33. According to God's plan of salvation, it was necessary for the Messiah to encounter, defeat, and overthrow God's enemy and the enemy of the saints on the enemy's own place of dominion in order to deliver man from the power and rule of Satan. Satan bruised the Savior's heel, but the Redeemer crushed Satan's head. Genesis 3.15. So that Christ would completely and comprehensively destroy his works, 1 John 3.8. The devil is a chained beast, Revelation 21-3, awaiting his place in the lake of fire, Revelation 20, verse 10. So if you stumble and fall because the devil tempts you, it's your fault. Christ has achieved the victory. 
He has defeated Satan, sin, and death at the cross. But that outworking of that in history is slow. It progresses slowly as yeast in a lump of dough. And you say, well, uh, things are really quite bad and they've gotten quite worse in the past hundred years. Yeah, well, that may be true, but things are a lot better now than they were before Jesus came to earth, when all the nations were, they were most of the nations were sacrificing their children to false gods, and uh, there were idolatrous cults with sex orgies and bestiality. It was part of religion. So things are better than they were, and Christianity has spread throughout the earth. Although it's, we're currently in a state of decline. Things don't go up perfectly smoothly. They go up and down. <clears throat> and then fourth, the temptation of Christ takes place in conjunction with an extraordinary fast. Verse 2. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now the number 40 in scripture is significant and is associated with testing, humiliation, and affliction. In order to flood and purify the earth from evil, Yahweh sent rain for 40 days and 40 nights upon the earth. Genesis 7.4 when Moses received the law of God, he was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Exodus 24:18. According to Deuteronomy 9, 9, Moses neither ate bread nor drank water during this whole period. He had to be supernaturally maintained in some sense, especially regarding the body's requirement of water. I saw a thing on, uh, where a woman went hiking with her husband, and uh, he stopped on the trail, and she said, I'm going to go up farther and take a few pictures, and she disappeared. And they couldn't find her. 38 days later, she came out of the woods, uh, almost dead. And she had lost 38 pounds in that period of time. She ate berries, and she drank muddy water, and she survived. But, I mean, you, you can go without food for a long period of time. You cannot go without water for more than a few days especially if it's hot. When God required the prophet Elijah to go to the wilderness and travel all the way to Horeb, the mountain of God, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, 1 Kings 19.8. Before Israel entered the promised land of blessing, they suffered 40 years of privation and testing in the wilderness. When the spies of Israel spied on the heathen in the land that God intended to conquer, to purify that land of evil, they did so for 40 days. Numbers 13.25. So this number of 40 in the case of our Lord's fast would call to mind new, significant historical events in Israel's salvation history and would present Jesus as the culmination of Moses and the prophets, of Moses and Elijah. And of course, who appears to Jesus? Well, appears with Jesus. And the disciples, some of the disciples see that. It's Moses and Elijah. The non-ceremonial or typical moral laws given to Moses continue with Jesus and are now called the law of Christ, 1 Corinthians 9.21. The divine revelation given through the prophets in, the, in the, these last days comes through God's Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus is the prophet, priest king, who saves the elect and regenerates all things. Now, I'm just scratching the surface. The, point, the reason I'm going into all this detail is to show you how rich scripture is, how it, you know, when you go into the details and you compare what's going on with Christ in the New Testament with the Old Testament, it's so crystal clear that he's the Messiah. 
that he is God, a very God, that he is God's only begotten son. It's crystal clear. Now, fasting is associated with self-humiliation and prayer. And Jesus' fasting is unique, for he is sinless. Okay, we, you know, we want, want to fast if we're trying to overcome a particularly difficult sinful habit or something. Well, he didn't have any sin. He didn't have any tendency towards sin. But he fasted for closer communion with God. Of course, he couldn't, he couldn't increase that either. But it's human nature, he fasted. This fast seems to be an aspect of his consecration and preparation as a means to render him hungry, to make the temptation much more intense. And Calvin's comments, I think, are very good here. This is what Calvin says. <clears throat> there were two reasons why Christ withdrew into the wilderness. First, that after a fast of 40 days, he might come forth as a new man, a heavenly man, to the discharge of his office. Okay, that's the preparatory aspect. Secondly, that he might be tried by temptation and undergo an apprenticeship before he undertook an office so arduous and so exalted. Calvin's always so wonderful. <clears throat> there is no conquest without combat. And Jesus went forth to combat the devil on our behalf. Christ was tempted that he might overcome the tempter. Satan tempted the first Adam and triumphed over him, but he will not always triumph. The second Adam shall overcome him and lead captivity captive. And that's exactly what happened. Everywhere where Adam failed, everywhere where Israel failed, Christ was totally victorious, perfectly victorious. The result of this fast is that afterward he was hungry uh, to be. Although some commentators, for example, Lemsky, believe that Jesus was tempted throughout the 40 days, it makes much more sense, based on the text, that Satan waited until Christ was very hungry and in a physically weakened condition before he approached. A fast of 40 days is exceptionally long, and some have argued that Jesus was supernaturally maintained by the Holy Spirit to endure, or even that he was sustained by his own divinity until near the end of the 40 days. Others argue that he was so wrapped up in prayer and communion with God that the hunger was not a terrible burden until near the end of the fast. In any case, his severe hunger was real because he was truly a man like us, yet without sin. Now, we want to consider one more thing that's very important to consider before we get into the temptation itself, and that's the character of Jesus' temptation. Jesus is he's fully man like us without sin, but he's, he's not just a regular person like us because he doesn't have sin. He doesn't have a sinful nature. Before we carefully examine our Lord's temptation, there are some important things to note about it because Jesus was, certain, was unique. Jesus could be tempted being a true man and certainly was tempted. Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in all points that is in every manner or respect as we are, yet without committing sin. But it was not possible for Christ to actually commit sin. It was not possible for Christ to commit sin. Yet the temptation is fully legitimate. There is not a dual personality in Christ. The fact that he is truly fully God and fully man in one person makes it impossible for him to act, think, or speak contrary to the will of God. The priorities, the properties of both the human and divine natures and prop are properties of the one person. 
This does not entail any kind of mixing or interpenetration of the two natures. And that's the problem with uh, Lutheranism. They believe that some of the divine attributes were communicated to Jesus' human nature. That's, uh, that's, that's heretical. That's actually wrong. Christ, however, is impeccable, incapable of sinning by virtue of the union of the two natures. Now, I bring that up because it's obvious and it, we have to recognize that. Now, another reason is that unlike all fallen men, Jesus did not have any original sin. He does not have that inner depravity pulling, urging, influencing him to give in to the temptation. James says, James 1.14, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. When we are tempted, we are tempted both from within and without. We are tempted from without by Satan and the allurements of the world and within by the sinful flesh and the old man what Paul calls the old man. We must watch and guard against the lust of the eyes and the lust of the world, as well as our own hearts that desire unlawful things out of depravity and out of habit. You'll say, well, why does one guy, he's tempted to get drunk and this guy's not tempted to get drunk? Well, before he was converted, maybe he liked to get drunk. <laughs> why does this guy have more of a problem with lust than this guy? Well, this guy was raised as a Christian and didn't look at things you shouldn't look at, and this guy was raised as a pagan, and he was out sleeping around like a dog. Paul says, Romans 7, 21, I find that a law that evil is with me, the one who wills to do good. It is true that even though Adam was sinless, he had the ability to sin and did sin. Christ is not only both fully God and fully man in one person, but his human nature was anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. Clearly then, we have not, we must acknowledge that it was impossible for Jesus to commit sin. He did not have that inner aspect. Now, he was hungry, but being hungry is not a sin. And it's not a sin to desire to eat food. It's a desire to do a miracle contrary to what, the purpose of miracles. That would be wrong, and that's what Satan tries to get him to do. Now, having noted the uniqueness of Christ, which I think I have to talk about because it's so clearly taught in Scripture, we must not think that he was not genuinely tempted. He was. But his temptation was fully external. There was nothing within him that could actually desire sin or even contemplate committing sin. What happens with us, what happens with Christians, is Satan offers a temptation. He usually picks something that you know, it's a weak area for us. Maybe somebody likes to overeat or maybe somebody uh, wants to look at uh, naked women or, what, you know, somebody wants to do something. And Satan, and so you're tempted and then you have an inner problem there and so you're tempted both from without and within. Well, Jesus didn't have that. He could be tempted from out without. With, with all this in mind, we can understand the nature of Jesus' temptation. Now, Christ was exceptionally hungry. His physical body had a, uh, a serious need, and he wanted to fulfill that need, which in and of itself was not a sin. If you're hungry, it's not a sin to want to eat, especially after a lengthy fast. Satan saw that need and that desire, which was fully lawful, and proposed a means of fulfilling that need, which was contrary to the will of God. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, 
contemplating the wrath of God and the tortures that were about to come upon him. He really was troubled and sorrowful. And we are told that he agonized over it in Luke 12.50. But he never contemplated not obeying God's will. Fallen men have external temptations and internal temptations that must be overcome. The sinful flesh is a great impediment to obedience and holiness. Jesus could experience lawful desires based on hunger or thirst or a need to sleep or not wanting to experience tortures. But he could never experience unlawful inner desires. The temptation of Christ was very real and very intense. But he only had to battle with the devil in external, external circumstances. He never had to battle with himself. He was ethically perfect and incapable of, incapable of sin. Now, whenever, whenever we discuss the two natures of Christ in one person, it is a difficult doctrine like the Trinity. But it's clearly taught in Scripture, and you have to, it would be irresponsible of me not to mention it in this instance. Well, let's have some applications, because we're going we're gonna to basically stop there, and we're going to get the actual temptation next week. As we reflect on the setting and introduction to the temptations, there are some important lessons to learn. First, being tempted is not a sin. Being tempted is not a sin. Jesus was tempted, and he never sinned. Temptation only becomes a problem when our sinful flesh starts making interior arguments as to why we should give in to the temptation. While we should never deliberately place ourselves in a situation of temptation, and we are to watch and pray against entering into temptation, remember Jesus in Gethsemane, watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. <coughs> if temptation comes, we must not allow our fleshly desires to get into a debate with our regenerate consciousness, which always wants to obey. on whether or not to obey God and his law. We are not to give the devil an opportunity by cooperating with external temptations inwardly. Okay, a guy says, well, you know, a guy used to be a drunk, and he's got a problem with that. And he, he now he's a professing Christian. He, he should never step foot in a bar. He should never, if there's a party and they're serving drinks, he shouldn't go there. He shouldn't have any booze in his house. He shouldn't drink at all. If that's a problem for him, he shouldn't do that. For other people, you know, you could put 20 bottles of whiskey in my house. It, it, it would be there for years. It's not a problem for me. I'm not tempted by that. Second, the devil is a real spiritual being, and we must be on guard against him, for he is the chief enemy of Christ and the biblical world and life view. Yeah, he's real. He's a real being. Satan was not afraid to assault Christ himself in a state of humiliation. And he is very persistent by attacking him in three different ways. He didn't attack him once and say, well, that didn't work. No, he kept going. He kept going until Christ rebuked him and ordered him to leave, and then he left. If Christ didn't order him to leave, he probably would have stayed there and kept tempting with different things. He is the one who came after Job and vexed him. He deceived David and helped him, uh, helped him fall. He sought to destroy Peter and the apostle stumbled grievously. He is compared to a vicious attacking lion. He is a murderer, accuser, liar, deceiver. 
And Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the demonic forces. That's from Ephesians. We must not understand that all the we must understand that all the crazy worldviews, all the murderous tyrants, all the criminals and vicious killers, as well as all sexual perverts, deviants, and temptresses, are all simply following Satan, their covenantal leader. That's why, you know, this idea, oh well, we should compromise. We should try to seek common ground with evil leaders and evil people. No, we shouldn't. We shouldn't be ecumenical with liberals who deny the word of God and deny the divinity of Christ and deny the resurrection. Why, why would we want to compromise like Billy Graham did? We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't compromise with political leaders who want to murder babies. That's crazy. Let us also remember that as Christians and disciples of Christ, we must crucify the flesh, we must overcome the world, and we must resist the devil. Third, we must always be on guard for temptations are part of every Christian's lives. A disciple is not greater than his master, nor a servant greater than his Lord. Satan opposed Jesus and sought to cause him to disobey God's will at every opportunity. He will also attack believers in every conceivable manner because of his hatred and opposition to Christ. History shows his cunning and adaptability. When he attempted to destroy the church through persecution in the first centuries of the church and failed, what did he do? He turned right around and he had a new policy of spreading heresies and lies and false teachings within the church. The great rise of secular humanism, macroevolution into the all-compassing messianic state is his doing as well. So when God says we, we, fight against, we don't fight against flesh and blood, we fight against the demonic forces, he's not saying that flesh and blood doesn't do all kinds of crazy things to try to stamp us out. He's telling us what is behind it. They're simply following what the demons want. <clears throat> God has warned us to watch and pray against temptations and the way Satan operates for our own protection and edification. Let us not give in to temptations. Let us not compromise biblical ethics or purity of worship or purity of doctrine. Let us carefully correct each other with a spirit of love, humility, and compassion. Fourth, let us never forget what Jesus went through and was victorious over on our behalf. It is the Lord's victory over Satan, sin, and death that saved us, and not we ourselves. He set us apart to follow him. Where Adam failed, the second Adam did not fail. We live because of him, and consequently we must live for him. So those are just some brief lessons. The main lessons, of course, will come with the actual temptations. What an amazing passage of Scripture. If you look at it in all its details, if you look at it with the consciousness of the Old Testament lying behind it, we see what an exceptionally rich section of Scripture. Christ is the second Adam. Christ came and he overcome the devil. He had victory for us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this uh, amazing section of Scripture. Help us to understand it. Help us to fight against the wiles of the devil. Help us to not give in to temptation. Help us to not allow inner lusts uh, to bargain with demonic ideas or demonic temptations. Help us, Lord, to overcome evil and follow Christ faithfully. In Jesus' name.
Amen.